turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 18. If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen for you. The text, as you will probably notice uh, as we read it and start walking through it, is somewhat repetitive. Uh, so the author of Hebrews has been, if you haven't picked up on it by now, he's kind of repeating some of the same arguments, some of the same concepts, and he does that intentionally. He's not being long-winded. He's not mansplaining anything. He is um, talking through to drive his point home. And this text here, I believe, is the culmination of chapters 1 through 9. So our portion here is um, the culmination of his argument that Christ is the better high priest. Christ is the better sacrifice. Christ is better than the law. He is better than everything else, and it all culminates in our text this morning. So as we walk through it and, um, and discuss it, uh, you're going to see some of that repetitive nature in there, but it's there for a reason. So don't just try to uh, gloss over it and uh, just like we've heard this, I know, we, we understand this, but it's here for a reason, and we want to soak it in, and we want to enjoy it this morning. So if you are able to, I invite you to stand up for the reading of God's Word out of respect for God's Word uh, with me this morning. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. 
And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you so much for the sacrifice of Christ. I pray this morning that we would all hear from you, God, that you would speak through me and you would glorify yourself. You would encourage us, challenge us, convict us, God, that we might live for you and that we might leave here today and go out and glorify you in the world around us because of your word this morning. Be with us now for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I uh, was a missionary kid in Spain, lived there. Uh, we moved there in 93 and lived in Valencia, Spain, which was the third largest city in Spain. And we lived on the first floor there, which here is, we would call the second floor. So in Spain, you have ground floor, then first floor, then second floor on up. So I lived in a nine-story tall apartment building, which is 10 stories here. And uh, there we didn't have blinds. So you have what we had, what was called, what we called in Spanish, uh, persianas. And it was just these big shutters that were plastic and slatted and you pull on the cord and they roll up into the top of the window. And so then you can roll them down. And as they're coming down, the slats would kind of line up on top of each other and they would have little gaps that you could see through. So you could close them and allow some light coming through, or you could close them all the way and make it completely dark. My parents' bedroom was at the front of the apartment, overlooking one of the busiest intersections. We think it was one of the busiest intersections uh, in the city. Uh, maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but, um, but it was a really busy intersection. And I remember going into their room once, and their Persianas were closed almost all the way, so it just had the, the little gaps that were in, in there. And I remember walking in and looking at their wall. So the window is on my left, the wall over their bed, and I could see an image of everything that was going on in the street. It was an amazing visual effect. Somehow, the light from outside was reflecting an image of people walking, cars driving by, um, cars lining up at the traffic lights, and I could see this image on the wall. It was a crazy effect, because I look at the window, I can't see anything, but then I look at the wall, I can see what's going on outside. It's really fascinating. That image, however, was a little blurry. It was a little distorted. It wasn't a clear image of what was going on. So if I really wanted to know what was going on outside, I would have had to open the window to look out there to see in full color, full detail, the comings and goings of people and the traffic moving. We had a park in front of our house, and so then I could really see into the park and see what was going on into the park. And that is what our, the author is getting at here in verse 1 when he says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. The law, the author is telling us, which is what he described last week in uh, Hebrews 9, 15 through the end, the week before that and the first 14 verses of Hebrews. And he has said multiple times throughout the um, initial nine chapters, the law is a shadow. It is an image. It is a mirror. So when God gave the law, the law was intended to point us toward something greater. So in the same way that I could look at that wall and see what was going on in the street, 
the actual reality of what was going on the street was far greater than that image that was just reflecting on there. And the law is that image on the wall that is being reflected off of far greater things. So as the Israelites would make their sacrifices, as they would go to first the tabernacle, then the temple, and they would worship God, they would see everything laid out in the temple in orderly fashion. They would make their sacrifices. Everything was not intended to just be that. It was intended to say, look, something greater than this is coming. Prepare yourself. Be ready for it. And that is what the author of Hebrews is arguing for. He says that this shadow of the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? So they are making sacrifices on a daily basis. And just in the same nature where you would say is ridiculous, Aaron, for you to sit down and stare at that wall and say, wow, I am living the life out here amongst the people, enjoying everything that's going on. You'd probably want me to uh, go see somebody to talk through things. And um, the author is saying here that the sacrifices that people are making on a daily basis, they had to keep doing year after year, day after day, because they couldn't perfect the people that were making those sacrifices. Otherwise, they would have stopped. It would have been a one-time deal, and then it's done. We could have made the sacrifices 50 years later. We could say, do you remember 50 years ago when we sacrificed that bull? We're good. We don't need to worry about it anymore. But no, they had to keep going year after year after year, day after day, making sacrifices over and over again because the sacrifices weren't perfect. The sacrifices weren't perfect to take away our sins once and for all. He says in verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrifices was a constant reminder that the people of Israel were sinful. It was a constant reminder that no matter what they did, no matter what they tried, no matter how hard they worked, they kept breaking the law. They couldn't keep the law of God. God said, if you live according to my law, you can enter heaven. You can be good. You can be perfect. But the reality is, and they are reminded every day they have to go and make a sacrifice, that they've broken the law. So that sacrifice appeases. And what we read um, two weeks ago, what Denton discussed um, from Hebrews chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, we read, according to... To this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the consciousness of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the sacrifices are a constant reminder that everything is still broken, that everything is not yet resolved. And there is a reformation that is coming there is a perfect sacrifice that is coming. And as they sacrifice, they are to remember and to look forward to that which is coming. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. This is describing the old covenant. 
So the old covenant was imperfect. And I keep repeating myself because I want to drive that point home, which I'm going to circle back to at the end uh, this morning. So the old covenant is a shadow, is a mirror, is an image pointing forward. Verse 5, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. At this point, he's quoting from Psalm 40. And, um, and you will notice a theme here as we're reading through these texts. He, um, the psalmist writes about the old covenant, then the new covenant. The old covenant, then the new covenant. And he's comparing and contrasting the two here. So sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Verse 6, in, the burnt, in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Those are the old covenant. But a body you have prepared for me. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. This is the new covenant. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. You have taken no pleasure in these things. They are here to remind us. They are here to point us to a reality. And God does not delight in the death of animals. The gods of ancient, around ancient Israel, so the gods of the Roman Empire at the time that um, the author of Hebrews is writing this, they delighted in the death of animals, in the death of people. That appeased them, and so they were happy and glad and rejoiced. There were some cults that worshipped and killed infants. There were some that worshipped and killed animals on a regular basis because their gods delighted in those deaths. The author of Hebrews is saying God doesn't delight in the death of these animals. He doesn't delight in the death of these things. He doesn't want you to come and just kill the animal, come, make the sacrifice, and then move on with your life saying, I did what I had to do. I can go about my own business, whatever I want. That's not what God is delighting in. That is not what God desires from his people. What he's truly desiring is the heart, a change of the heart. And as um, Denton talked about uh, two weeks ago, and as we just read, um, that these things, the gifts and sacrifices, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The psalmist writes here, we see at the bottom half of, birth, of verse 5, but a body you have prepared for me. And the author of Hebrews is attributing these words to Christ. So Christ himself is saying, you do not delight in sacrifices, but you've prepared a body for me. So the son of God, who's living in heaven, is saying, God, you don't delight in what is going on down here, but you have prepared a body for me. And so Christ steps out of heaven into this body that God prepared for his son to be the ultimate sacrifice, to be the one sacrifice that would please God and that God would delight in. He says, Christ concludes this, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Christ came being obedient to God's will. So the first covenant is a shadow, it is an image, it is a mirror intended to point us to Christ who came to fulfill God's design, 
and God's purpose, which was for Christ to take on human flesh and to be that sacrifice for us. The author then goes on to say in verse 8, When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. He does away with the first covenant in order to establish the second covenant. And last week we talked about that second covenant. We talked about the new covenant in Christ, that Christ is our mediator. Christ is our perfect high priest who sacrificed himself and is now mediating and interceding for us in heaven. This is the new covenant that God established because he prepared a body for Christ to be sacrificed, to seal up the first covenant, and so that the new covenant can be entered in by the people. Verse 10 is an amazing verse. And by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Where the blood of bulls and goats cannot cleanse the conscience, they cannot perfect, they cannot heal, they cannot redeem, they cannot transform Christ's sacrifice. As it says here, we have been sanctified through the offering of his body once for all. That is why we are here this morning, because of this very reality. This is why we have a declaration of pardon, to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. You have been sanctified. Do you feel sanctified? If you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ and you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do you feel sanctified? Or do you still feel burdened and bogged down by your sin on an ongoing, regular basis? The scriptures tells us, tell us, you have been sanctified. So there is an already not yet reality. We'll talk about that a, a little bit more here in just a moment. But the already is that it's done. Christ died once for all for you so that you can be sanctified. It is finished. It's what Christ said when he was on the cross and he gave himself up. And then we go on to compare the old law to what Christ has done in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service. Notice here the language. The priest stands daily. Standing, implying you're working, you're moving, you're not resting, you're still doing this, and he does this daily. The priest, under the old law, stands daily, offering repeated, repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, again, we have that language, for all time, once for all, we're going to see this theme going on, once for all, for all time. He offered a single sacrifice for sins. He didn't do this daily. He didn't do this yearly. He didn't do this forever and ever and ever. It was once for all. It was done. And he took away sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Notice, notice the contrast there. The priests under the old law are standing daily working, offering repeated sacrifice. Christ offers himself once. Then he sits down at the right hand of God. It is finished. There's no more work that needs to be done. The price has been paid. 
The guilt has been removed. Sin has been wiped away. It is done. The author of Hebrews opens his letter in chapter 1, verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And here we see the bookend of that. Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. He sat down at the right hand of God. Christ is our high priest. He's greater than any other priest that has ever existed. He's greater than any other priest that will ever existed. He is it. He offered the perfect sacrifice, but not just that. He offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to wipe away sins. The old law pointed to this. The old covenant was foreshadowing, was pointing to this new covenant. And the author of Hebrews keeps repeating himself over and over again because his point is, don't miss this. Don't go back to the old. The old is imperfect. The old isn't good enough. It is the new covenant which finalizes and does everything that we were hoping for in the old covenant. It is in Christ that it is done and it is finished. And Christ is resting. Christ is done. He sat down. But now we have another image. So we've talked about Christ as the perfect high priest, Christ as the perfect sacrifice. But now in verse 13, we see he's sitting down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is the image of a conquering king. This is the image of a king who marches into enemy territory, defeats his enemies, and then humiliates them, but he doesn't enslave them. He doesn't make them servants. He doesn't say, okay, you need to serve me now and pay me tithes and money. No, no, no. He turns them into furniture. So this God king, this perfect high priest and perfect sacrifice is conquering his enemies to the point where they can do nothing but serve to help him in his rest from him completing all of his works. So right now, Christ is resting until that day when victory is assured. It is already assured, and it will be accomplished, and it will be completed. So take heart. As you face trials and tribulations in the world today, take heart. It will end. It's going to be done away with. I think of all of God's enemies that are alive today that want to kill his children. It happens over and over again in the Middle East and in other places where people are killing Christians because they love Jesus and they follow Jesus. I've said this before, the life expectancy in Somalia, when, when a Somali comes to faith in Jesus Christ, is something like 20 to 40 days, somewhere in there. So it is known amongst the Somalis, if I give my life to Christ, I will die within the month. People hate Christ promised that. He will say there will come a day when people will kill you thinking they are doing God a service. That happened not long after Christ left, and it's still happening today. But there is hope right here. Christ conquered sin. He conquered death because he rose from the grave. And there will come a day when his enemies will be humiliated and made a footstool for his feet. He is the perfect he is the perfect sacrifice. 
He is the perfect high priest. And that is the God that we love and the God that we serve and the God that loves us. He is on our side. So there is nothing to fear. There is nothing to be worried about because we have a God who fights for us and wins the victory. We might not feel it now. We might not experience it now. But the ultimate victory is Christ. And so there is no concern on our part. Verse 14 is perhaps the beautiful centerpiece of the entire book of Hebrews. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So here we have that already not yet. In verse 10, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You have been sanctified. Then here in 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you've got in the Greek, you've got two different um, verb tenses and forms that are happening here for the exact same word. In verse 10, it is done. It's a one and done deal. It's done. You have been sanctified. Done. Here in verse 14, you are being sanctified. So, but notice he starts off that he has perfected for all time. So you have been perfected for all time. By one offering, by one sacrifice, you have been perfected for all time. Done. But you are being sanctified. Because as we know, we still sin. We still wrestle with that. We read in Romans, Paul says in chapter 7, which is a great verse, or a great chapter, why do I do what I do? And I'm, this is the Aaron paraphrase here, by the way. This, I'm not exactly quoting, but why do I do what I do and what I want to do I do not do and what I do not want to do I do. So we want to follow Christ. We want to serve God, but yet we still sin and we still choose to sin. It's not like we stumble and trip and like, oh no, I I'm, I'm fell in the mud. It's no, it's like, oh look, mud, yay. And we jump in. That's what we do, but we are being sanctified. For those who are in Christ, Christ's death on the cross has sanctified you, has perfected you, and now you are being sanctified as we go on. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That's why we have a time of confessing sin here. This is why we take the time to acknowledge before God that we have sinned. This is why here at Redeemer we have men's fight club, we have women's fight club, where you can come and you can confess sin. We can hold each other accountable to walk in the love and the knowledge of the Lord and in his joy, where we can challenge each other to set aside sin and run the race that, that Christ has set before us. This is why we do this here at Redeemer, because of what Christ has done. So take courage. You have been perfected. You have been sanctified. And Christ has won the victory. He is your high priest who is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you on a daily basis. And he is your high king who will defeat his enemies and humiliate them. So there's nothing to fear. That is the God that we love and the God that we serve. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31 here, which we talked about last week, which we saw also in chapter 8. 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you are in the new covenant, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Romans, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise. That is a guarantee. But notice, it's not just verbally acknowledging. It's not just mentally assenting to, yes, I believe in God. When I did uh, missions work in West Africa, we would always go into a village and we'd sit down and we'd talk with the elders and the chief of, of a village. And they would always say, why are you here? So to which I would start to say, like, God has called us to share a message with your people. We don't force anybody to listen to this message, but if you want to hear this, then we will share this message from God. Well, in Africa, in West Africa, you will be really hard-pressed to find an atheist who doesn't believe that, that there is a God. In Senegal, where I was based, um, there was either Muslims or Christians. You either believed in Muhammad or you believed in Jesus Christ. And typically, when they said uh, Christian, they meant either Catholic or Jehovah's Witness. Those were their only two concepts of what a Christian was. But the idea that God didn't exist was so far beyond their minds. Um, the, we had a day guard who was also kind of the gardener and groundskeeper and everything else um, where at the, the Baptist Center where, um, where I live. Robert, he loved the Lord, and I cannot wait to get to heaven to, to be with him again because he, is, he had the sweetest spirit and a very innocent spirit too. Um, I had an iPod and an FM transmitter uh, where I could broadcast it over the radio. And he asked me one day, he said, he said, brother, what is this? And I said, I said, well, this has music on it. And this was back in the days, the iPod Nano, if anybody remembers those. Um, and so it had 500 songs, and that was a lot at the time. Uh, I said, this has about 500 songs on here, and this allows me to play it over the radio. And he said, this has music on it? He's like, oh, technology. Next, people will say there is no God. So he drew the correlation between the advancement of technology and the fact that God doesn't exist. And I said, Robert, people already believe that there is no God. What? You've met these people? So the concept and the idea that somebody wouldn't believe in any kind of God was foreign to him. So when we would go into these villages and we would tell these chief, uh, chiefs and elders, we have a message from God, they would say, what is this message? We want to hear it. We believe in God. Tell us this message. So we would story from creation all the way through the resurrection in anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes, sometimes a little longer. And then at the end, we would say, this is the message that God has. What questions do you have? More often than not, the response was, well, we're Muslim. We follow Muhammad. You're a Christian. You follow Jesus. Occasionally, and this happened one time, and we'd have different variations of this every now and then, but in one village, they told me, it is too late for us. We are too old. We are already committed to Islam. However, we believe what you are saying is true. We want you to come back and teach our children this. So they thought it was too late for them. They were already committed to Islam. Now, they did say that what you are saying is true, and we believe it is true, 
but it's too late for us. So that verbal assent is not what Paul is talking about in Romans when he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's not just saying you need to say this is true and acknowledge this is true. But he goes on to say, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So it is that heart belief that is where everything spurs out of. So out of, out of the um, treasures of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm butchering that verse. But, um, but we speak out of our heart. We speak what's inside of us. What we truly believe, what we truly think flows out of our heart. And so if we genuinely believe in Jesus Christ, and we believe not just that he was good, not just that he was a teacher, but that he rose from the dead, then you will be saved. That is a promise from the scriptures. So if that is you here this morning, you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, God promises that you will be saved, which means you are in the new covenant, which means that Christ's sacrifice that is being talked about here in Hebrews chapter 10 covers you. God says, I will write, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God will remember your sins no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So two concluding thoughts from this. Number one, if you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no longer any offering for sin. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more that you can do. For years, I wrestled with the guilt and the oppression of my sin. And when I would sin against God, when I chose to jump into the mud and I acknowledged it and recognized it, that I chose to ignore God and run after my own desires, I would be so convicted and so guilty and so ashamed that I felt that I had to prove to God that I was repentant, that I had to prove to God that I was remorseful enough just to enter into his presence to ask for his forgiveness. So I had to prove myself to God so that he would welcome me in and I can say, Father, please forgive me. That's what I felt. Intellectually, I knew that wasn't true, but experientially, that's the pressure and burden that was on me. I was talking to, to Denton and Robert about this uh, last week, and uh, I'm going to use your example, Denton. Um, so he shared a very similar thing to, um, to another guy one time that he was doing ministry with, and I, I'm going to butcher the, the details exactly, but the other guy said, how prideful is that? How arrogant is that? that you think that there is something you can contribute to Christ's sacrifice. Scriptures here teaches us Christ accomplished it once for all. You have been sanctified once for all. You have been perfected once for all. There is forgiveness of these things. It says, he concludes in verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So for me to think that I have to prove to God that I am sorry and remorseful and humble enough that I can enter into his presence is actually an act of pride because I am contributing to what Christ has accomplished. 
there's no longer any more offering. Why would I go back to the old law where every day I have to offer a sacrifice and a sacrifice and a sacrifice? Why would I do that when in the new covenant, Christ has accomplished it once and for all? So if you are here this morning, stand assured that it is finished. The offering is done. You don't need to beat yourself up and prove to yourself that you are remorseful to God just for him to love you again. In my studying and research this, um, I came across another example that uh, a pastor gave, and I love this example. Um, And this is true for me, too. So I'll just apply it to myself in this scenario. I've got two boys, and they are my offspring. They are my boys. They are my family. So I am their father. But they are not perfect little angels. They do sin on a daily basis, and they sin against me. And when they sin against me, our relationship, in a way, is broken. But despite the fact that our fellowship is broken and distorted and changed and shifted, doesn't nullify the fact that they are still my sons. They are still my family. And I still love them. I don't love what they've done. I don't love how they're acting. I don't love how they're relating toward me. Toward me. But I still love them. And for me, in my own sinfulness, in my own sinful condition, I might respond sinfully to their sin. I might react in a poor way when they sin against me, when they sin against Lindsay, their mom. I might react wrongfully and sinfully, but I still love them. And if they come to me and say, Dad, I am so sorry for what I did. Will you forgive me? I will say, absolutely, I forgive you. And that is me, a sinful human being. How much more will the perfect God, the holy God of the universe, who loves you unconditionally, who who loves you perfectly, who loves you without sin, when you sin against him, he doesn't respond in a sinful manner. He responds in a loving, perfect manner. And so if you are in Christ, there is nothing you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. It is there, perfectly there. You are adopted into his family and there is nothing you can do to excommunicate yourself from his family. You are in. So we confess sin here on Sunday morning. We confess sin in our daily life, not to get back into the family of God because we're already in the family of God. We confess sin to say, God, I screwed up. I'm so sorry. I want our fellowship to be renewed again. And God says, absolutely, I love you. Just look at Christ. Look what I did for you. Why would I not love you? Why would I not welcomely embrace you back in? Look at the story of the prodigal son that Jesus gave. The one child took his inheritance, ran away, squandered it all, came back, and before he could say anything, his dad ran up and just fully embraced him. He never stopped being his son when he took his inheritance and left. He was still his son, and he came back. So when we sin, that's us. We are still God's sons and daughters, and we come back, and he embraces us. That's the first conclusion from today. Take courage. God loves you. There's nothing you can do to complete the work 
that Christ accomplished on the cross. It is finished once for all. The second thing, the first time I read this passage um, to just kind of glance over it, okay, what will I be preparing for? I just kind of skimmed over it, and the first thought that came to my mind was that the, the Roman Catholic Church teaches purgatory, and this text stands in opposition to that teaching on purgatory. I'm not a betting man. I don't like to, to bet because I lose every time. I learned that as a kid. I don't remember the circumstances. I don't remember the details. I just remember my sister and I arguing over some point, and I knew I was right, to the point where I said, I bet you a McDonald's cheeseburger <laughs> that I am right. So if I win, if I'm right, you have to buy me a cheeseburger. She said, all right, but if I win, you have to buy me a cheeseburger. I said, absolutely, I'm right. Turns out I was wrong. And 75 cents back in the late 80s, early 90s is a lot to an eight-year-old. That's a lot of money, 75 cents. So I had to buy her a cheeseburger. I don't like to bet. I lose on a regular basis. However, this text, I stand on this text in 100% confidence. And I will bet my life that this text is right. And I will do so unashamedly. This text teaches us there is no purgatory. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that purgatory is where you go to finish purging yourself of sin. Christ died on the cross to make heaven attainable for you, to make heaven accessible to you. But heaven, there won't be any sinful beings in there. There won't be anybody who is tainted by sin in heaven. Therefore, as you go throughout your life, you go to Mass. You, partic you participate in the sacrifice of Mass. You participate in the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. You um, take those things and you earn grace, which also cleanses you from sin. You go and confess your sins, which cleanses you from sin. You do the different works and the different things that need to be done to help purge the sin from you. And then when you die, you spend time in purgatory. And then there are theologians that will differ on this, but from what little research I've done, it seems like the, the overwhelming majority of Catholic theologians believe that purgatory will be trial by fire, purification by fire, a place where the sin is burned out of you. Then once you have gotten rid of all the sin, then you can enter heaven. That is not what Hebrews teaches us here. Verse 10, and by that will, by God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. What more do we have to offer to the completed work of Jesus Christ? It is done. It is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be done. We cannot purify ourselves. Christ had to do that, and he did it perfectly once for all. Stand here today with the confidence 
that if you believe in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven and they are counted no more against you. If you are here today and you don't know Christ, I plead with you, know him. Repent and follow him. Come and talk to me, Denton or Robert. We want to tell you what it means to follow Jesus Christ so that you can stand in confidence. There is no more guilt. There is no more shame. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.